0: I want us to hear from the Word of God today from John chapter 10 about the identity of Jesus. This is who He says He is to us and for us and for this world. He said, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of him, ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life. And have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock is scattered. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I am known by the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. David said of our Lord that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's present. You are with me, David said. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. He concludes by saying, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We spent several days this past week in the bottom of that valley, that valley of the shadow of death. As we sat with a good friend who was leaving this life and entering eternal life, it is a safe statement to say that for the first time in almost 60 years, there is no chance that Roger Swank is going to walk through these doors today. He's attending a perfect, beautiful church service in heaven. It is not possible to estimate humanly how important Roger was to this church. But I've said it many times and I'll say it again. If not Roger for Janet, I I give you great confidence that we would not be here today. Both of them had a tremendous vision for God's great desire for his church. As I read John 10 this morning, I, if you had a chance to know Roger in, in healthier days, you know that Roger, Roger could be emotional, but, but you would never call him uh, warm and cuddly. And I doubt that Roger would read this particular passage and, and feel kind of, warm fuzzies about the Lord being his shepherd, but I can tell you this. When Jesus started saying, other sheep are not yet part of my fold, but they will be, I can promise you this, Roger's excitement built because he had a tremendous passion to see lost people come to know Jesus. He was one of the few people during a season in our church who had a vision beyond the sheepfold to see the white fields and to say, what are we doing here caring for each other? We're supposed to be out there reaching people who do not yet know Jesus. That was his passion, that was his burden, and that DNA is part of who we are today. And in large part is because of him and because of his wife. I hope you will join me today as well as in the days to come praying for Janet. She's been best friends with this man since she was a teenager. And Roger's not here, but Janet knows full well she is not alone. She's got four kids who love her like, oh my goodness, they love her like crazy. And grandkids and great-grandkids. And she has a church family who just loves to put their arms around her and let her know that she is not alone. I cannot tell you how many people, when I talk to you around here, you say, I came the first time to see what was going on. I came back because of Janet Swank. Janet said hi the first week, figured out my name, and she remembered, and she cared. And now it's our turn to show that care and to show that love. Join with me in prayer. Good Father in heaven, we are grateful that you send people into our lives that we can look to and say, he is heroic. She is admirable. Not perfect. Yes, broken but heroic and admirable nonetheless. I thank you for the faithful and good walk, the run, the race of Roger Swank, and for the well-done, good and faithful servant that he heard in his very own ears as he looked into your face, Jesus. And I pray now for those of us that are still here waiting for the day that we will be able to enjoy that house that you are preparing for us, I especially pray for Janet today. Let her know your peace and your comfort, the friendship that comes from family, both relatives and those related by blood through Jesus. We love you, God. Amen. Amen. servers are going to come right now and receive the morning offering and Brian you you're going to go ahead and share with us some things in the links they finally showed up again today for the first time in a while.
1: Yeah, our links are back <clears throat> and the first one you'll see there has to do with our junior hires. We've moved away from a season of mentoring and instead we are giving our junior hires the opportunity to serve in big kids. Now this is really cool because we believe here at Southfield that students are not the church of the future, they are the church of now. So having the chance to to get in and work in Big Kids is, uh, is a big part of who we are. So uh, if you are a junior hire and you would like to serve, go ahead, click that link, uh, or you can go to the welcome desk and we can get you signed up. Again, it's a really cool opportunity to get your feet wet in terms of serving uh, here at church. Now, it is a big commitment because even though you'll be serving during the 1030 service, it means You've got to show up and be here for the nine o'clock. So we just want you to be aware of that. Uh, that it is a big commitment, but it's something that we're really excited for uh, for those of you who do sign up. Our Refuge and Revive schedules are back to normal. We kicked off Refuge this past Wednesday uh, in style, and we're going through a series where we're looking at the foundations of our faith, starting with a real like, what does a real relationship with God look like, and how do our emotions play into that? How can we be authentic with God? Tonight, we fire up with our high schoolers uh, at, at Revive from 6 to 8 tonight, and we're going to be looking at God's, since we're made in the image of God, what does God look like? What, does, what, do, what do we, looking at ourselves, what, do, what does looking at ourselves tell us about who God is? So again, really excited for that and some, some messy games and all that, all that good stuff, starting tonight uh, from 6 to 8 with Revive. The next link is for everybody. It's try a soft serve. So if you have been look, if you've been coming for a while, or maybe you're brand new and you want to try serving in an area, but you don't want to like lead a journey group right away, uh, you can sign up for this soft serve. It says listen in Spotify, and you'll be disappointed that it's not a Spotify playlist. It actually is a Woofu sign up link. Okay? Uh, so you can click that. And the soft serve idea is just, again, there's so many small roles that are essential to keeping things running. Uh, Around here. So if you sign up for that, we'll let you know kind of what roles we have open and available for you. But if you're looking to get involved here at Southfield, that's a great way to do that. Uh, Finally, we have some uh, baptism news.
0: Yeah, so what this summer has taught us is that whenever you make plans, uh, know that they can be changed. And they have changed and changed and changed. Our original plan this summer was. At the beginning of June, we were going to have a dedication of our building and do on-site baptisms and then bookend that with a picnic at the end of the summer and baptisms at the river. And we waited and waited and waited for the moisture to leave our floor, and it finally did. And flooring finally got installed. It's in there, yay. But what it does is it puts those two events about two weeks apart. And so I know that we all love food, and it would be fun to do a picnic and then a week off and another picnic. But what we've chosen to do instead is, for those who would like to do the baptism at the river, and that's, that's become, I mean, just part of our identity. It's been so fun to go down to the DuPage River and, and have those public baptisms. For those that want to get baptized that way, we're actually going to leave church right after the second service next week, head over with them and do the baptisms, but we'll hold off for the, for the picnic for a couple weeks later on September 9th when we're actually going to have our building dedication on that day. So that day will involve starting in here with singing and and that part of the service and then we'll move on over to the gym for the baptisms followed by uh, a picnic and some fun that day. So I thank you for your flexibility. It's been, uh, people keep asking, so when are the baptisms again? I'm like, when they happen. Well, now we finally know when they're going to happen. So next week, river baptisms for those who want that and then in a couple weeks on September 9th. Both of them
1: are real? Both of them count? Yes, both are real, both
0: count. Uh, We will (laughs) never quite forget that verbal gaffe. Thank you so very much. Yeah, Brian one day referred to uh, tank baptisms as not as real as the river. So anyway, um, but I hope that it's just going to be a a great fun few weeks of celebrating. Let's uh, pray one more time together to our God. Father in heaven, we thank you for the many ways that you've drawn our eyes toward you this morning, and now we pray that as we have a chance to look at your word, our eyes will be drawn there once again. We will hear what you have to say to us, and in a true act of worship, we will be changed. We'll live more like you and less like ourselves. We love you, Jesus. Amen. What do you do when? Fill in the blank. That's a question I get asked quite a bit as a pastor. Sometimes the question gets asked uh, in advance, before an incident, it's theoretical, a person's kind of preparing for possibilities. But more often than not, it gets asked in hindsight, not a hypothetical, but an actual, hey, this is, this is what I'm going through right now, help, what, what do you do when, fill in the blank. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at a few of those questions. Next week, we're, we're going to talk through, I think, something that is really just, it's relevant to our times. What do I do when an honest discussion turns really disagreeable? Now, we know the truth. We know the truth of the Word of God. And sometimes we go ahead and we share that truth, and all of a sudden, boom, the tanks roll in, and there's, and there's battle, and you're like, what do I do? How do I share and not move to this space, this place of, of just disagreeable argument? How do we handle that? On Labor Day, we're going to talk about what do I do when my job is ruining my life? Sometimes, you know, you got you to work, you got to eat, but you're going, why am I doing this? I, it's just, it's, it's ruining my life. What do we do when that happens? Today's topic is, um, what do I do when my hero lets me down? What do I do when there's been someone I admire in my life and they mess up? It's been a tough season for our heroes. For many of us, people we admire and respect, people we look up to and even aspire to be like, have let us down in ways that when we heard the initial news, we thought, it's got to be fake. There's no way. I know him. I know her. That's not consistent at all with what I know of their character. It can't be true. Are you sure you got the story right? I had a hero crash and burn in unimaginable ways last December 4th. I got a call from Ben Mott. Many of you know Ben. He's the president of Green Lake Conference Center where we go uh, with our work camps and have fun. He was an attender here, and, and if all fails, he's the British guy, so hopefully that helps. Ben called me and said, Bill Lentz is dead. That was a punch in the gut. 60 years old, A man I admired, he's the picture of health, and I'm thinking, wow, if he's dead, I'm in big trouble. And um, to which my question was, what happened? Heart attack, what what happened? He said, Bill shot himself, he ended his life. Bill was my hero. Around 2010, I was going through one of the darkest seasons of my professional and personal life, and I went for an, an intense week for a course that they offered that we've come to know as foundations around here. Bill was the pastor of the church that offered it. In fact, he's the designer of the program. During that week, that long, intense week, <coughs> a week I've often compared to taking a bath in vinegar with a Brillo pad, Bill helped me walk through my very dark valley. At the end of the week, when he offered his final affirmations and hopes, Bill said, I have a verse for you. It's Psalm 3.3. Now before I read it, let me add, in the program, you're asked to come up with an image that helps to define, describe how you deal with life. I didn't even have to think about it very long at all. I was one of those little animals in the game, whack-a-mole. You know, whack-a-mole, thing comes up out of the hole and you've got that big kind of rubber mallet and you're, you're bashing them back down into the game. I was one of those animals And in brutal situations, I had learned to stay in the hole. I had learned to keep my head low. If I kept my head low, I could avoid getting whacked, both figuratively and literally. He said, I have a verse for you. Psalm 3.3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He said, every time you're tempted to duck. God does this for you. And he, and he took his finger and, and he took it and put it under my chin and he lifted up my head physically. That moment changed me forever. He changed me forever. This summer I sat at a lunch table at Green Lake with Bill's brother Bob, a ministry hero by his own right. I didn't know how much time I had so I just, I just cut right to it. I told him how Bill really had saved me, pulled me from such a dark place. And I told him the Psalm 3, 3 story. And Bob listened and Bob wept. And then he looked at me and he looked at the other people at the table and he said, how could he do it? How could the man who told you God is the lifter of your head put a gun to his own? What do we do with that? Fallen hero? I was preparing for Palm Sunday this year and I happened onto a breaking internet story. A man who, who I had literally, thank you verbally, referred to as a ministry hero of mine was in the news, and the news was not good. Bill Hybels was the pastor of Willow Creek Church, and he was being accused of mistreating women in a way that was inconsistent with everything anyone knew of him. My initial response was the same as those closest to him. It had to be a smear job. It was the jealousies of others. Even Christians can get ugly sometimes, and their jealousies can squirt out sideways in ways that are just pretty dreadful. But as time has passed and more has come to light, it's hard to imagine that it was just a smear job. i got to admit, I still don't know totally what to think, but I do know from his own words that he said he placed himself in compromising situations that led to where he is today. The guy who wrote, Who are you when no one's looking, was not the man we thought he was while no one was looking. Willow has had a profound impact on us as a church and a great impact on me personally. We watched them, and we learned from them. The evangelical church of the late 20th century and the early 21st century has Willow's fingerprints all over it. For several years, I headed there on Wednesday nights just to receive the teaching of John Ortberg. And now this. What do we do with this? Another fallen hero. In the last several days, some of our students find themselves wading through disillusionment and shock as they have experienced a fallen hero. A local school teacher whom they admire killed his wife. What do we do with that? Yet another fallen hero. I could go on for the next 30 minutes listing my fallen heroes. And then we could add your list and we could go on for several more hours. Those you admired up close, as well as from afar, had a one-time event or an ongoing pattern of behavior exposed that was inconsistent with who they seemed to be and what they taught and what they said and what they stood for. What do we do with that? I was searching for a graphic for this lesson and I came across this. Heroes in recovery. How fitting. Broken heroes. It's oxymoronic, and yet it is reality. Heroes break. Now, some will suggest in a knee-jerk manner this simple answer. You should never have a hero, at least not a human one. Never put a person on a pedestal. Never look up to anyone. Everyone is disappointing, and someday they will disappoint you. Isn't cynicism lovely? It's so easy, it's so simplistic, and it's so wrong and so unbiblical. This suggestion reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. Many of you have seen it before because I love it and use it often. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung out and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will be broken. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable impenetrable and irredeemable. The path of the cynic seems safe, when in fact it is a safe. A safe where you lock up your heart and you lock up your hopes, you protect yourself and you insulate yourself and you starve your soul. The way of the cynic is not life-giving. In fact, it is safe to say it is selfish and it is destructive. When we think of biblical heroes and especially fallen biblical heroes, our minds might quickly race to King David. What a mess he made that night. He walked out on the porch. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He took a second look. He called for her. And he wandered down a path so inconsistent with the character of the shepherd king we know as the man after God's own heart. Yes, he is a hero who fell hard. He's a hero who let a bunch of people down. But I'd I'd like to step back a page. What about King Saul? And what 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 about David's personal hero, the king of Israel? What can we learn not from David's fall from grace, but the way he interacted with a hero who let him down and repeatedly broke his heart? Do you think it is possible that David saw Saul as a hero? I do. I do. David, officially in Israel, holds the rank of nobody from nowhere as a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. And Saul is the king of the land. Have you ever met someone famous? I mean, really famous. Really, really, a, a really famous person. My most significant brush with fame would have to have happened on a day in August several years back. It was a, the year of a presidential campaign. And George Bush and Dick Cheney were coming through Bloomington Normal on a train. And they were going to have a crowd there, and there was this event going on. We're like, let's go down and see what's going on. We got there, and we are like, we saw the huge crowd gathered, and we're trying to figure out how can we position ourselves in a way that we might possibly get a chance to at least be close enough to see them. And when we got there, we're like, wow, look at this. We're really close to the train right here. This seems like a good spot. And so we got positioned, and the train starts rolling in, and we have kind of this uh oh moment because we realize the train has now cut us off from where the event is taking place. So all we're gonna do is stare at a train. So we all started to chant move the train move the train. And I, I think one of the staffers must have realized this was not going to play well on CNN telling the train to leave Illinois. And so they came over real quick and said, just, just be quiet and we'll bring him over to you. And I'm not kidding. We're all like, yeah, right, sure. And Kim says, we'll bring Cheney too. So anyway, the event ends and, and I'm not kidding. Within, within moments of the event ending, Dick Cheney is on his way over to us. And we're like, are you kidding me? Really? And we happened to, happen to have his wife's book. And we you know, we're hoping she'd sign it. And, but we'll settle for Dick Cheney. This is kind of cool. And then, and, then, and then George Bush goes whipping through. And you know Kim goes to hand him the pen. And the Secret Service tackles her because that could be a weapon. But anyway, and then, and then Lynn Cheney comes over and says, someone told me you have my book over here. And we just kind of walked away from the day going, that was crazy. People you see at the distance, on the news, and, and you actually get to like shake their hand and say hi and have a brief conversation. It was, it was nuts. Little nothing from nowhere gets to meet the king of Israel. I suspect that he saw Saul as heroic. And on this particular day that he gets to meet, all of Israel is quivering because of a giant named Goliath. And David walks up and he says, what's the big deal? I can take him. Actually, that's not exactly what he said. If you look at 1 Samuel 17, he says, as I've guarded my father's sheep and goats, a bear or lion has come to steal a lamb and I've clubbed him and then I've taken him by the jaw and I've ripped his jaws open. And he says not just lion and bear. In verse 36, I have done this to both lions and bears. We saw a spider building a web last night over our, over our patio. And Kim's like, go kill it. I'm like, I'm not touching that thing. Lions and bears. And I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. And you're thinking like, wow, this guy, he thinks he has an impressive resume. But he says, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The God who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will do the same for me. And Saul says, all right, go ahead. It seems like he's just giving his resume, but in the end he says, the Lord is my rescuer, and God can do anything. We read this chapter, and because of this epic battle, we read it on a legendary level, but can we go human for a moment? A teenage shepherd, official status, nobody from nowhere, is standing in the tent of the King of Israel a man David will repeatedly refer to as God's anointed, David looked up to Saul. He had respect for him. And at the least, we could conclude, he had great respect for the office of the king of Israel. How do you think David's doing a chapter later when the anointed one, seething with jealousy, picks up a spear and attempts to pin David's body to the wall? For years, Saul hunted David like an animal. David's former hero was acting like a madman. He was living in a way that was completely inconsistent with being the anointed king of Israel. So what can we learn from David about how we handle our broken heroes? Well, let me say first that it does not seem that his solution was to say never admire anybody ever again. That's not what David said. He continued throughout Saul's days to call him the Lord's anointed. He never shifted to a perspective like many of us do, claiming that Saul's actions had lost him the right to be respected. His final words about Saul, his eulogy, are found in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And it played on this particular line, Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Not the dirty dog finally got what he deserved. The heroes have fallen. I want to read it together. I think it's instructive as as how David's mind worked. It says, David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. They were to sing this. The song was called The Song of the Bow, and it's recorded in the book of Joshua. He writes, your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hill's Oh how the mighty heroes have fallen! Don't announce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon, or your daughters, or or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, and the pagans will laugh in triumph. I I love the fact that he doesn't say expose it, expose it, and let everybody finally know what a rotten person Saul was. He says, "I don't want my, I don't want the enemies of Israel cheering about this." Oh mountains of Galboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty heroes was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. The bow of Jonathan was powerful, and the sword of Saul did mighty works. He acknowledges Saul did some great things. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the body of the mighty heroes. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. He includes both names in the list of those who were gracious. The guy who tried to pin him to the wall. The guy who tried to kill him in his sleep. They were together in life and death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. O oh, women of Israel, weep for Saul. For he dressed you in luxury, a luxurious scarlet clothing, in garments decorated with gold. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies dead in the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I love you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of a woman. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Stripped of their weapons, they lie dead. David didn't stop admiring people. He didn't idolize them. He didn't worship them, but he didn't stop admiring them. And there's a huge difference between a hero and an idol, between admiration and worship. We really need to ask ourselves this straightforward question. Is this person in my life a hero or an idol? Do I admire them or do I worship them? What's the difference, you might ask? Well, an idol, as we already saw from our communion question, replaces the status of God for us. And worship is something reserved for someone who can never do anything wrong. Hear that last part again. Worship is something reserved for someone who can never do anything wrong. How many beings qualify for that list? One. One. God. Remember the words from last week? You're never going to let me down. Never going to let me down. Those words apply to no human being even the best of them. We know that someone has moved to a place of idol and worship when we, begin, when we cannot begin to grasp the possibility that they might possibly do something wrong. Oh, we may pay lip service to imperfection. Of course, everybody stumbles. But inside we think everybody but not him. As Roger celebrates this first Sunday in heaven, I look at him and think he's one of the most perfect human beings I ever knew. Really. For 23 years, he has been one of my true heroes. He was disciplined. He was smart. He was generous. And even Roger had flaws and faults. But I still admired him. There's a massive gulf between admiration and worship. Admiration sees a person for what they really are. They're human. How do we define human? How does the Bible redefine human? Psalm 103.14 says, For he, God, he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. You know what the Bible says of us? We're little dirt balls. Every one of us is a little dust bunny. Imperfect dust. God knows that, though we tend to forget. Your hero is human. Your heroes are human. I don't think the Bible is saying, stop admiring people. It's saying, remember the building material of the person you admire, dust. Our humanity is not an excuse for our sin. But our humanity is the reality of our condition. Can I make a sad but true statement of reality? We will all be let down. And we will all be a letdown. We will all be let down and we will all be a letdown. Why? Why? Because humans are not God. We are not perfect. We are not sinless. We yield temptation. We get blind to our own motives and our actions. We have blind spots. I'm not being cynical here. I'm stating reality. We are on a path toward growth and on that path we stumble. The second thing we need to understand is that we will all fall. Not just because we are human, but also because it is the potential path toward our growth. Our falling is an invitation from God toward a new beginning. Now this is complicated. I'm not saying that it's part of God's plan for us to sin, that that He's planned out our sin. But, But God invites us in our moments of fallenness and brokenness to choose a new path. Falling is an invitation toward growth. And unfortunately, when a person is a hero, their fall and their growth invitation do not happen in isolation or in secret. I could give a long list today of heroes who fell from very high places and their response to their fall led to a new heroic day for them. There may be no better modern day example for us than that of Chuck Colson. He was an advisor to President Nixon, a conspirator in Watergate, a convicted felon by his own, and by his, own mission, by his own admission, a vile man who in prison encountered a person named Jesus. In prison, he came to grips with the plight of prisoners and their families. He founded Prison Fellowship, programs like Angel Tree that minister to children and their families and the families of those incarcerated resulted from, Car- from Colson's fall from hero status. We not, need not just to see our heroes as human, we need to let them have the opportunity to grow. And sometimes that growth comes through a devastating fall. God does not cause sin, but God can use our fall as an opportunity for a new day. A fall is an invitation to get back up. Falls often come with some form of confrontation. Samuel had the sad task of confronting King Saul. Nathan the prophet had the difficult task of exposing David's adultery and murder. Saul's heart at that conversation became heart, and he lost the throne. David's heart immediately owned his sin. He confessed, and he began the long and difficult road of restoration. Both were invited to change through their fall. One did, one did not. That new day always starts with repentance. And to be honest, for some in high places, The fall has to be high enough and hard enough and ugly enough for them to finally come clean, not just with everybody else but with themselves and with God. A new day can be born from a very bad place. Can I ask you, will we allow our heroes the opportunity to grow? Will we demand their perfection and not give them the opportunity to grow? Heroes are human. They are dust balls. Yet they are worthy of admiration. Not worship, but admiration. Our heroes are growing, and growth involves stumbles and mistakes and sins and disappointments. Will we let them grow? One more thing we need to see, and truthfully there are many more, but we do like to honor the clock, and it's vanished. Our heroes are human. Our heroes are growing and need space to grow. And here's the other thing. Despite what may have happened, our heroes are still heroic. Oh, how we tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. One bad action and we're done, that's it. Did you ever watch the movie The Ten Commandments? We watched it like every Easter. I didn't know as a kid it was actually Passover. I thought they were showing it for Easter, but nonetheless. Here was Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner. Do you remember when Pharaoh banishes young Moses from the kingdom? Moses is being taken from Pharaoh's court in shackles. And and Pharaoh begins this pronouncement with a dramatic voice and drumbeat. Let the name of Moses be stricken from the book. I want one of those boom booms. Anyway, for many of us, when a hero falls, we want to strike them from the book. Never speak their name again. You're not allowed to talk about them we see the fall as negating any good that ever might have come from their hands. Think this through with me. In 1 Samuel 18, Saul tries spearing David to the wall. Later in chapter 18, he promises his daughter to to David in marriage and then gives her away to someone else. And then says, I have another daughter, but in order to have her, you're going to have to do something and you'll probably end up dead. Chapter 19, he tries to spear him again and then he tries to kill him in bed. Chapter after chapter, David is on the run. Saul kills a group of priests who help David. David spares Saul's life twice, only to have Saul seem to be sorry and then go stone cold once again. In chapter 5, Saul actually takes the wife of David and gives her away to someone else in marriage. Any of these things as a standalone is horrible. Cumulatively, they're reprehensible. Yet when others disrespected Saul or plotted against him, David responded by saying that Saul is God's anointed one. Don't touch him. When Saul is lying dead, David doesn't look and say, for all the evil he did, he doesn't even deserve a funeral. No. He writes a song that without the background story you would think was written about a man who lived a perfect life. Somehow David was able to do what so many of us resist. For David saw Saul's fall after fall after fall from grace did not negate that which he saw as good in Saul and good from Saul. Whether it is one act or several, a fall from grace does not negate the goodness we've realized from the hands of our broken heroes The fact that my friend could lift a gun to his head does not negate the fact that he helped me understand that God is the lifter of my head when I want to duck. A prominent pastor's repeated deplorable actions does not wipe out the good that has been done in Christ's church through his influence over the decades. And even a teacher who acted in a way that was so violent and brutal still does not negate the fact that there were moments that he gently moved hearts toward goodness. Our heroes are human. They are made of dust. Our heroes do fall, and their fall is an invitation toward their growth. Our heroes, despite despicable and deplorable actions, still did some things in our lives that are worthy of honor and worthy of respect and praise. I admit that what I'm saying here today is not easy. It would be easier to say never have a hero. But the path toward greater maturity, this is the path toward greater maturity, and that's the goal God has for us, right? Mature and perfect, lacking nothing. What do I do when my hero lets me down? If your answer is never have a hero, I'm sad for you. You are missing out on part of God's desire for you. God wired you to admire. Philippians 4.8 says, Dear dear brothers and sisters, one last thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. He says, cherish goodness. Hold all things in balance. Heroes are to be admired, but only God is to be worshipped. Heroes are human dust. God is divine. He will never disappoint. Heroes still help us to be better, even when they are not at their very best. Last Sunday was a, 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 an anniversary for me. I've talked about it in the past, an anniversary of a tragedy. When I was 14 years old, my best friend got killed on August 12th. And because of Facebook and whatever these days, I tend to connect with some of my friends from the past and I got contacted by one friend from school and she was just kind of asking about details about the day. She was only 12. She didn't really know everything that had gone on and, and I responded to her with a message that was probably way, way, way longer than she ever wanted. And in it I said, you know, there's something I got to say to you. I used to come over your house. Her, her brother was my, my friend at that time. I so said, I used to come over to your house and your dad, your dad was Amazing. Your dad was kind and gentle and good. It was clear that he loved you kids more than anything in the world. He'd do anything for you. And I needed to see that a man could be like that. And she wrote back and she said, Thanks for reminding me of a time that my dad was a good man. Toward the end of the life, he got involved in some addictive behaviors and he really embarrassed his family. And she said, I needed to be reminded of a time that he was heroic. The end of his life did not negate the good things that he did and who he was along the way. I got to tell you that if I were a person who said, I will take my heart and I will lock it in a box to keep it safe. I would never have enjoyed The hero I have for the last 23 years. And I'd trade that any day. I mean, I just, I would not trade that any day. To be able to have that kind of a person that you can admire. Broken, yes. Dust ball, yes. Admirable. Choose to admire your heroes. Do it. It's worth it. Let's stand and pray. Father God in heaven, I pray that you will help us to be people who grow to learn how to deal with our disappointments in a more healthy way. People will let us down. It is a fact of of broken, sinful human life. But to avoid engagement in order to be safe is simply choosing to bury our hearts. And that is not your desire for us. I pray today for the heroes that we talked about today and the heroes that have come up in our minds as we've been talking. Some who still need their day of repentance and some who have repented, their life has never been the same. God, I pray that you will give them the strength to turn toward you with a whole heart to love you fully. To redeem what has been lost and broken. As we walk out into this week, keep us conscious of your presence, of your perfect presence. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really good to see you today.